Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's right on 59 minutes and 33 seconds to four o'clock, so it's coming up to four and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. Today, political struggles in Asia. I'll be speaking with Giselle Hanna, who went to Malaysia recently and spoke with activists from Burma, Cambodia, Malaysia. Also, Dr Brian Sinwaratna, he's been away for a while. He's been to the Cook Islands and just for something different, he went to Canada. We'll be finding out what he's been doing and and what he believes is happening in Sri Lanka at the moment. Peter Brock was part of a fact-finding visit to Australian-connected mines in the Philippines earlier this year. He's a political activist for the Philippines, human rights activist, actually worked there for a while as a human rights activist. We'll be hearing Peter talk about his fact-finding tour and also about an upcoming conference on mining in the Philippines. But first of all, up comes Mr Kevin Healy and it's post-radiothon. But first of all, a great big thank you to all the wonderful people who have donated to Tuesday Home Time in the past couple of weeks. It's just wonderful to know that there are people out there who value 3CR value the program and the work that goes into putting programs together every week. And it's a sincere thank you to everyone. A week, Jane Listler, when we caught up with big supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses. Uh, A question, Tiny. I will neither confirm nor deny. Confirm nor deny what? That I am Tiny. But you are. I may not be. I will neither confirm nor deny. I just want to confirm, whoever you are, True Blue Aussie is opposed to paying people smugglers, isn't it? Certainly. We do not condone criminals. Stop the boats. Stop the boats. Then did we pay these criminal people smugglers? I will neither confirm nor deny. Uh, By the way, why are you amassing all that heavy machinery? I'm going to build a big wall. Just a minute. Peter, make sure we've got the razor wire and check how deep it is out there. Speaking of, Pete, that giant mind, ex-train killer, ex-minister for concentration camps, razor wire and sink the boats, Peter Duffer. Uh, Pete, did we pay people smugglers to people smuggle somewhere else? No, there is no truth to that false, not true, beat up, false, not true story. Excuse me, uh, my advisor wants to tell me something. Uh, Minister, uh, pss, 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 pss. Uh, as I was saying, I will neither confirm nor deny. Mm, it's just hard to know, isn't it, whether we did or didn't, and we do have to make a concession to Tiny when he declared last week we would handle all these matters by hook or by crook. And as people have said, we have to concede he got it half right. We also caught up with Tidy's ideological enemies, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Bill Shorten Ambition. Uh, Shocking hypocrisy, Bill, this paying people smugglers. 
This disgraceful chapter in True Blue Aussie history shows just how far this government will go. This is a government that has no regard for propriety. A Socialist Party government would never pay people smugglers. I can neither confirm nor deny. Got to say, that response does kick the guts out of the opposition's opposition a bit. Got to feel sorry for poor old Joe Hackey, the workers, our economic guru, for coming under attack for stating the obvious. Of course housing is affordable if you've got a highly paid job, like... Well, big economic guru, for instance, and I think he was simply encouraging people. After all, if he can become economic guru, anyone can. Joe did say well-paid and secure, but I left secure out in deference to Joe's job. And this mindless criticism that Joe collects expenses for living in his own house in Canberra, rubbish, because we all know it's his wife, the merchant banker's house, and with the rent he pays and the rent others they rent the house to, sorry about they, she, she rents the house to, she can afford to supply Joe with those cigars and cognac and other modest little enjoyments with which he celebrates his own economic brilliance. Another great Trubler was he tiny, tiny shepherd the wealth, former Trubler was he business profits council big supremo, who presented the council's solutions to all our problems to tiny and team Trubler was he, which became last year's oh so popular budget, told us we're all winches. Well, not the business profits people who know what's good for us, but they just can't believe how the riffraff just whinge, whinge, whinge. After Joe brought down my budget, which adopted my sensible suggestions that the poor should pay so they could all be better off, the poor never stopped whinging, revealing they have absolutely no idea what's good for them. Any wonder they're still poor. You never hear my friends or me whinge. He whinged. And, he added... You don't hear me whinging about unaffordable housing. All of my homes and other properties in my property portfolio have been a sensible, affordable investment. And I'm pleased to see my government, or, or the, the government, has resisted silly socialist suggestions that we scrap negative gearing and other investment incentives. As my friend, the other tiny, tiny junior, I call him, <laughs> pointed out, that would only serve to increase rents, and, and I'm pleased to say I'm playing my part as a proud troop to Aussie, providing much-needed rental accommodation, even if the bloody tenants spend half their lives whinging. Although on the sundry chambers of profits generally, I, I don't get it. When evil unions demand pay increases and crippling conditions, those who understand the delicate flower of the economy tell us this will destroy the world as we know it. Like when the fair work true blue Aussie no longer work choices just looks like a con mission gave a pittance to the lowest of lowest paid the other day, the caring employers told us just how selfish these lowest of lowest low paid workers are, destroying caring employers and costing other lowest of lowest low paid workers the chance to work, selfishly costing other workers jobs and we know jobs are all caring employers care about. Every time they're faced with serious challenges like having to pay workers, their first thought is the impact on jobs, on the workers they so care about. So when a not-so-evil union recognises these problems and agrees to reduce wages and conditions and inflate its influence on 
the Socialist Party, where it can argue the poor caring employer's case, we'd expect the caring employers and the mainstream media, which is also a caring employer, to praise responsible union non-bosses, because union boss is a pejorative. Responsible union officials seize a millions, for instance, but no, apparently they want union officials to fight for higher wages and conditions. The Chambers of Profits, the Royal Kanga Mission and Tiny and Team True Blue Aussie are attacking a union for not fighting for higher wages and conditions. They're concerned that workers are being ripped off. It's all very confusing, but let us thank Caesar and whoever else gets caught up in all this if the story proves correct, because what a contribution they've made to the floundering credibility of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga Mission, providing them with ammunition which may not be a fizz, a beat-up, unions fighting for safety in the workplace and other heinous crimes like workers and or union bosses telling caring employers or caring employer representatives like the Royal Kanga Mission, they don't like them all that much. An especially heinous, thankless crime. Yes, with friends like Caesar, Bill and Co, who needs? Then again, the AWU has always been a model for solidarity forever. Workers of the world unite. Tiny Junior, Big Supremo Tiny, told an interview last week with Sydney shock jock Alan Nose, a meeting at the Giant Mines, he had attempted during the recent negotiations to reduce the target for renewable energy, because we were in grave danger of having too much renewable energy, which might mean we end up exceeding our 5% target, heaven forbid, that he wanted to reduce the target to a sensible zero. Wind farms are visually awful, and he wanted to kneecap the industry, and setting a target in the first place had been a major mistake. We need beautiful, attractive coal mines producing beautiful, lifting the world out of poverty coal. So how dare this international get-together claim True Blue Aussie is taking a free ride on climate change, sponging on the rest of the world, for goodness sake. We're the biggest per capita contributor in the whole world, and both the caring business class government and the Socialist Party would-be government are determined to reduce our emissions by that whole 5% of what they were in 1880 or whatever. The rest of the world is so bloody arrogant. It's not easy cutting emissions while increasing your use of beautiful coal and beautiful oil and beautiful gas, but we're trying. Investment classes at Scotch College and other very expensive, especially for the public purse, elite private schools are providing invaluable education in the art of ripping off, the art of flogging a dead horse, so to speak, as a world beater. Wonderful that these schools are churning out the next generation of bondies, able to get away with billions of other people's money. And didn't it epitomise the egalitarianism of True Blue Aussie society that a rabid socialist like our former great and beloved Prime Minister Nuclear Hawk himself was seen with tears glitting as he talked about his little mate Bondi, the late and unmourned Alan Stocks and Bonds, his little mate as a great businessman. Although a clarification, when the media described Nuclear Hawk's hero Bondi as arguably the biggest corporate crook in True Blue Aussie history, we have to qualify. The biggest corporate crook who got sprung 
After all, the very nature of what they do every day makes them crooks. And they, like tiny Shepherd the Wealth, spend much of their time advising government and those they rob how we can improve their system so they can rob us even more. The greatest little economic order of them all. Finally, over in the US of the UN of the US of the world, Hillary, half of that impoverished clean tons, clean tons of wealth family, declared she would be the greatest saviour of the US of working people, of the impoverished, way, way to the left of Marx, Engels, et al. While clapping and cheering Hillary, I did think, I suppose it would be silly to have a real worker represent workers. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr. Kevin Healy. And if you'd like some more of that, some more of different things as well, the time and the place is 3CR tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock for an hour of City Limits with Mr. Kevin Healy. Music Matters is having a film fundraiser. Come along to the fantastic new documentary about the life of Amy Winehouse. It's happening around 6.30 at the Kino Cinema in Collins Street in the city, Thursday the 2nd of July. Tickets are $20 concession, $25 full. You can buy your tickets online, 3cr.org.au or come to the station, 21 Smith Street in Fitzroy, or phone Loretta during business hours on 94198377. Support 3CR. Support Music Matters. 3CR broadcaster Giselle Hanna travelled to Malaysia in April representing Australia Asia Worker Links to speak with human rights and union activist coincided with the 26th ASEAN Summit and the ASEAN People's Summit. Here, Giselle explains the concept of ASEAN. It's the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. It's five countries. It's Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Singapore and Thailand. And it's the heads of those nations that come together as an economic organisation like the WTO, but just for the southeastern region. And so ASEAN meets every year and often People's Forum or a People's Summit is organised historically in opposition to it. But as these conferences are organised more and more, the association between the People's Summit and the actual ASEAN meeting gets closer and closer. So actually what I've noticed is that it's actually becoming more and more right-wing, actually very much like international NGOs, INGOs, worldwide are are slowly moving more and more to the right. I remember participating in the S11 protests in 2001 and that was a very serious counter mobilisation to the World Trade Organisation. That doesn't really happen anymore. There are like these conferences where people discuss, for instance, the focus of this year was a people-focused ASEAN, which we know with our analysis of capitalism that that is virtually impossible, but that is kind of the direction it's heading in. This wasn't your first time there? This was my first time at an an ASEAN People's Summit. It wasn't my first time in Malaysia and it wasn't my first time meeting with the organisations that put on the conference. 
And who were they? A special organising committee came together, but it involved many what they call civil society organisations in Malaysia, groups like Swaram, which is a human rights organisation, Malaysia Kini, which is a left-wing progressive media outlet, and then some unaligned liberal individuals who have taken on being the secretariat of the ASEAN People's Forum, so the APF. So they're kind of some of the groups that have been involved in it. And what was your contribution? I take a very practical approach to it. And my organisation, Australia Asia Worker Links, takes that view as well. So it's not so much that I went to participate in the conversations because I thought there was some inherent value in the conference. Rather, it's an opportunity to meet with activists, trade unionists and to use their language, civil society organisations from the region and that the networking opportunity, the space to discuss campaigns, that was the value that I really saw in going. I was in Malaysia for about eight days. The conference was three days. Outside and around it, I was able to meet with the MTUC, the Malaysian Trade Union Congress. I met with some organisers who are organising workers in free trade zones. I was able to meet with Cambodian garment industry workers and unions. And I also met with some activists from Thailand. And, you know, that was really important because there's not a lot of democratic space in Thailand at the moment. Because of the military coup, I was very interested to know, you know, what are the conditions like on the ground? So I had the opportunity to speak to somebody who's working on the Thai-Burma border. And it's interesting to see that, in fact, business is booming on the border. I don't think that's an accident. Well, let's talk a bit more about those people that you met. The stay with Thailand for a minute. You spoke about the border, but what about what did you find out about what's happening right in Thailand itself? We know that under the military coup, so the coup happened in May 2014. So we're coming up to 12-month anniversary of that coup. And, of course, there was the bloody uprising, well, the uprising that a lot of people were murdered in 2009 and a coup in 2009. So... The red shirts and the yellow shirts, that distinction is not really as clear as it was in 2009. Let me give a bit of history. So Tuxin was a very free market advocate and he was privatising a lot of industry. So a lot of the trade unions were opposed to Tuxin's policies. And then when he was ousted and the military took over in a coup, it was very difficult for the trade unions to then stand with Tuxin and there was no middle road established. So there was no space, I guess, for the unions to say, not Tuxin, not the coup, there must be another way. So what ended up happening is most of the unions went to the Royalists, so went to the Yellows, and it had a very, very disastrous impact on the labour movement in Thailand. And it was initially because they they were opposed to privatisation so vehemently. The, the military is now proposing privatisation too. So what people predicted initially, the military is not the friend of the labour movement or people or democracy, much of that is starting to be realised. The fact that the military is the enemy of the working people and, and it is something that we need to oppose. However, 
any possibility of democratic space has been systematically disappeared. So now people can barely utter words of resistance without the threat of being imprisoned. And the main instrument that is used against activists, trade unionists, any voices of dissent is les majeste, which is a law that forbids people from offending the monarchy. Now, that term offence is interpreted very, very broadly. Very recently, so in the last two to three months, we saw these university, not even activists, these university theatre people go to prison for five and six years each, the two producers of this theatre production called The Wolf Bride. It's an historic piece. It's based in the 16th century. Somehow this has been interpreted to cause offence to the monarchy and these individuals have been have been incarcerated. And I don't think too many people realise the dreadful conditions that are in Thai prisons. Thailand is a third world country so the prisons are reflective of broader society. We are supporting a particular prisoner, Somyot Pruksakasemsuk. And we know that he's unwell and access to medical assistance, access to clean and fresh water, appropriate nutrition and things like that, that's simply unavailable. The conditions in prison is obviously something very important for for activists to talk about. But I would say more so the issue of impunity for the military and the broad targeting of voices of dissent. It is such a divisive tactic. If someone annoys you or upsets you or says something to, you know, basically piss you off, all it takes is raising a complaint. This person said X and then you're arrested. I mean, in countries like Indonesia, where we know the labour movement splits at the drop of a hat, if you had something like Les Majeste where, you know, there's a split in an organisation and splits in organisation are very serious, it's very, very emotive. That is part of the way that Les Majeste can be used to, to split our ranks. Apart from anything, as I've said a number of times, there is just no democratic space to, to even commence organising. This is the other thing about Thailand. The military coup, the military dictatorship in Thailand is not something unique or specific to Thailand. Dictatorships serve a very clear function under capitalism. The whole point is to reduce democratic space, to prevent workers from from organising and ultimately to push wages and conditions so far down, you can have virtual slave-like conditions That is exactly what we're seeing in Thailand. And as I I mentioned earlier, production is booming on the border. That's not an accident. The fact that car manufacturers are moving in, Ford is moving in, you know, Ford is closing in Australia and we're led to believe that, you know, the market has slumped, you know, people just aren't buying brand new, new cars. That's not the case. Production is being moved to a part of the world where workers cannot organise to increase their wages and conditions, where conditions are so poor and wages are so poor that people can barely afford to to eat, to keep going to work. In fact, they're basically maintained on a virtually a subsistence lifestyle because of the conditions there. That's a really important thing to remember when talking about Thailand, not the machinations of government, not you know, which faction in the military is about to try and take power. I mean, a lot of people easily get distracted with that. But 
I think we need to be organising because that is what a, a military dictatorship is designed to prevent. So to be clear, the trade union movement is not raising anything because they didn't take a position against the coup. It would be wrong to say they've been wiped out, but there is no space for trade unions to say anything. They've taken a serious hit in the direction that they chose when they sided with the military. And does the military control social media? Absolutely. So there's no avenue there for dissent either? No, and in addition to controlling it, they're watching. So people that are putting things up on Facebook are at risk of being arrested. And those that are putting things up on Facebook and are not at risk of being arrested, I would have a lot of questions about that. So where does that leave the society? Where's it heading? For the people that you were talking to, what are they feeling? Well, a lot of people that I spoke to talked about the fact that there was some organising happening. They were hopeful. I mean, the situation is very, very serious in Thailand. Is this coup worse than all the others? Or is this just the the last or the latest in a succession of coups in Thailand? It's different from the perspective of things seem to be coming to a head. The king is very, very sick. It seems that he is the person holding everything together If he dies, there is likely to be a split in the military and in terms of where loyalties will lie between his son and his daughter. It's possible that that will result in pretty much a civil war. It's more serious because of the time, because the king is now very, very sick. The son's a playboy, isn't he? And they don't agree with the woman taking power. Is that true? Well, a lot of analysts on Thailand will get into the minutiae of these sorts of things. I mean, if you take three or four steps back back, and you look at the situation, there's a dictatorship. What is the job of dictatorship? Well, my analysis is, is to control organising, prevent organising, basically to enable workers to be exploited as much as possible. So who's siding with the brother, who's siding with the sister? A civil war is a serious issue for workers. So that is certainly something that will warrant a response. Well, when you're talking about workers being exploited to the hilt, you need go no further than Cambodia. So yeah, I did. I met with some workers in Cambodia. And actually, I don't know if listeners recall, February 2014, there was a a very big mobilisation of garment industry workers who were fighting for uh, an increase of the minimum wage. Four workers were killed and 23 were arrested. Those 23 have been released and I met two of them who participated in that and had been released from prison and the union that had that was responsible for that particular campaign. So that was actually quite a highlight of the visit to Malaysia to have an opportunity to talk to these workers. When you're in a country where wages are so low and you're working to be organised and the first step to being organised is finding a group of people that think the same way in relation to industrial demands or economic demands. Then you start to create a union and one of the critical cornerstones of unionisation is dues, right? So then people pay a proportion of their wages to the union. That environment is so open and ripe for 
corruption. So a lot of the time unions in third world countries will look to somehow bolster their their ability to organise. So they might seek philanthropic funds to fund organisers, etc. And then you have a lot of players in there. So who's interested in keeping wages low in Cambodia, in Thailand, in Bangladesh? Right. So then you've got those multinationals who have an interest in not having genuine organising. And this isn't a criticism. I'm not at all trying to criticise individuals. I'm just trying to describe the situation so that it's understandable, so that you kind of know the ground in which you're organising. So one of the things that were, that I understand people are, are grappling with in Cambodia right now is this tendency, I guess, for, you know, to get funding from elsewhere and then somehow be beholden to those philanthropic organisations. And it's a real debate. People are actually grappling with that. How, can, how do you genuinely represent the interests of your members when your members are being paid poverty wages and whatever they're able to contribute by way of dues is not necessarily enough to keep organisers going. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on radio station 3CR. Joan Bartlett and I'm speaking with Chazelle Hanna who recently spent time in Malaysia. They're very brave people though, aren't they? How do they see themselves? So, you know, when I was talking to the women who um, had participated in the minimum wage campaign, some of the things that they talk about are, are so far away from my lived experience. It's I can often just, I, I'm, I'm speechless. So one of the things that they describe, especially when you're willing to put your body on the line and you know that the cops are going to open fire on you, you know the thugs are coming with batons to smash your head in you know that's happening and one of the things they say is well we're dying anyway our wages and conditions are death wages and conditions so we have nothing to lose that is one of the ways that they describe how they take to the streets knowing what faces them and many of those young women or women have come from rural villages and come to the big city and they've probably got no support because their families are still back in the village. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that's consistently talked about by the women in the garment industry on the Thai-Burma border and in Cambodia and Bangladesh, I didn't meet any Bangladeshis in Malaysia on this particular visit, um, but what they consistently talk about is when young women leave the villages in order to go into industry, the sexual harassment is absolutely rife. And it and for many of them, it's a matter of life or death, wages or no wages, in terms of the broad range of exploitation and sexual violence perpetrated against them. The other in relation to sexual violence in Thailand. So because conditions are so abhorrent, many, many people are leaving Thailand. And a lot of people are entering Malaysia in particular and are working as domestic workers. Again, so undocumented, so the situation is very, very precarious and their domestic workers are pretty much house servants for rich business people in Malaysia. And the sexual violence in those conditions is absolutely incredible. Some of the stories that I heard were shocking. And it's not just sexual violence that women are contending with, but it's sexual oppression or, or sexist oppression. So one of the conditions for working in some of the factories in Thailand is that you're not allowed to have sex. And that is about controlling women's 
reproductivity. So if you're pregnant, firstly, you've violated a condition of your labor and you can be fired, sent home with no wages because you violated those conditions. So it's just extraordinary what women in Asia are, are dealing with. And are these women being trafficked? Not always. Sometimes women willingly go into domestic labor and sometimes women willingly go into sex work. But what they don't willingly go into is being raped and they don't willingly go into domestic work in order to be sexually abused as well as having to clean households. You're talking about Cambodia and you're talking about Thailand. What about Thailand and Burma, the border area there? What's happening? Most of industries on the Thai side, so the laws of Thailand apply. What I've been told is that many, many new enterprises are moving in. Business is booming, as I said before. We know that car factories are moving in. We know that Korean car factories, Japanese car factories, electronics, so component manufacturing, garment industry as always. One of the main things, so people migrate from other parts of Thailand to the border in order to work. And for obvious reasons, there are exceptions to payment of the minimum wage on the Thai-Burma border. So the government says life costless. So the cost of living on the on the border is less than the cost of living in Thailand. That doesn't marry up with people's lived experience on the border. Looking at Malaysia itself, what are the activists telling you about life for them in Malaysia? Listeners are probably aware of the last four years of the increasing Brassais movement. And I think the election last year, so May 5th last year, was a little bit disappointing for a lot of activists. I think a lot of the Brassais activists really, really believed that they had a shot of taking out that election. And when it didn't, I haven't seen a Brassais demonstration since. However, Activists are now being targeted under the sedition laws. So activists used to be targeted under the ISA, the Internal Security Act, which was repealed. But of course, Malaysia's found another way to go after activists. And a number of our comrades have been arrested numerous times under sedition. And most recently, a couple of weeks ago, a whole swathe of activists were arrested under sedition. Was that the May Day? That's right. Democratic space, I I think, depending on the strength of the movement, that space either increases or doesn't. And I think that's important for people to remember. There's no such thing as we've got great laws. All of that is a battle. It's a battle between the forces on the ground and the forces of the state. And the forces of the state never want us to have space. And the reason that we have so much space in in Australia is because we fought for it. So in Malaysia, the battle is a little bit more pronounced than it is here. Additionally, the government has moved or has introduced legislation, some anti-terror legislation, you know, allegedly in response to the ISIS threat. Of course, people are probably aware that Malaysia has gone in on Saudi Arabia's side in relation to its attacks against Yemen. Malaysia's introduced anti-terror legislation that basically allows for detention without trial for 90 days plus the opportunity to extend that period. So really tricky stuff in in relation to activists finding space to to organise. One of the biggest issues that workers at the very least are facing in Malaysia is the 
perpetual issue across Asia, across not just Asia, most of the world. What, the way they describe it in Malaysia is irregular and regular workers. We call it casualization. Everywhere you go, the issue of flexible labour is something that workers everywhere will talk about. Irregular workers technically unallowed to join unions, so it's a very divisive tactic in a workplace. And in the same way that 457 visas or other forms of temporary visas split workers in Australia, so you've got workers that say, oh, these 457s come in and take our jobs. That is one of the ways that the bosses try and split workers by introducing irregular labour. The other thing is migrant workers, undocumented workers. So, is it known how many there are, or estimates of how many? No, but they, you know, a lot of them come from Burma. A lot of them are coming from Nepal as well. And you know, I was I was looking at a construction site particularly, and you know, I was some distance away from it, and I was with a comrade. So, I noticed on the scaffolding the distance between the levels and um, the effort that workers were going to in order to climb up and I said it's quite unusual why not you know lower the steps and what she said was basically the scaffolding is designed for Malaysian bodies and these Burmese workers are much littler and, and that's part of the reason that they're not able to climb as easily as some of the Malaysian workers and then from an occupational health and safety issue so these workers virtually don't exist they're undocumented and it's extraordinary the lengths that capitalism will go and to maximize profits so if they're undocumented they wouldn't know how many have died Yeah, I don't think they know how many have died anyway. I think there are civil society organisations that are trying to track that kind of information, but it is really difficult. In Thailand, we reported recently, by we, I mean Australia, Asia Worker Links, reported recently a grave of workers that had pretty much died at work that was just hidden. This is what happens. And have you had the situation in Malaysia of workers actually dying of overwork? I haven't heard that so much from Malaysia Korea. It happens a lot, particularly in a company in Samsung. Samsung, we hear about a lot. Foxconn, which um, produces iPhones and so on. So we hear of um, people dying of overwork in that industry, in the electronics industry particularly. Uh, But I've not really heard that in Malaysia, also not Cambodia or Thailand, but China definitely, Korea absolutely, Japan also. That's not to say it doesn't happen. And what's the situation of those who were arrested at May Day? Yeah, so everybody was held, was detained overnight and were released the next day, but the charges are still pending against them. So there is still a fight to to have those charges dropped. And was it a big May Day rally? No bigger than usual. 20,000 people in Kuala Lumpur. Is that big? That is big in Kuala Lumpur, but I didn't know it was 20,000. The issue is GST. So this is so they're proposing to introduce a GST, a goods and services tax, and they oppose it for the same reason Australians opposed it at the time. We lost that battle for very similar reasons. So it's a disproportionate tax. So basically poorer people are going to pay more tax because a greater proportion of their income is spent on goods. Can you talk about women workers and women trade unions in Malaysia? The trade union movement in Malaysia was smashed in the the seventies and was you know one of the targets of the of the ISA. So it's been a, a slow but steady build up. There are a number of free trade zones in Malaysia as well, which makes organising quite difficult. The Malaysian trade union movement is quite small compared to Australia, for instance, or 
I mean, Korea is unfair to compare them to Korea. But like many trade union movements across the world, it is male-dominated. I mean, I would still say Australia's trade union movement is male-dominated. Many women who are in leadership positions in the labour movement really do have to fight and work overtime for those positions. The secretary of the MTUC is a man. The the president is also male. A lot of the reception staff are female. Um, All of the organisers I met were male as well. And I'm not at all trying to diminish the issue of gender in the hierarchy of the labour movement. But one of the things that I think is probably more pressing is establishing a solid left-wing organising labour movement, just rebuilding from the, the multiple hits that they took. Well, looking at those eight days in Malaysia, what do you believe you contributed and what do you believe you learnt? I learned a lot about where the labour movement is at. So I've been travelling to Malaysia probably for the last five to ten years and others in Australia Asia Worker Links have been travelling to Malaysia for 30 years. We established very, very good links with the formal labour movement which supported activists on the ground. So actually developing long-term links means that activists on the ground in Malaysia can also maintain those connections as well. Sorry, I wanted to go back to the women in the labour movement. A really fascinating development in Malaysia, though, is that finance sector workers are actually among the most radical in the labour movement. I mean, that's almost unheard of. Finance sector workers are really, really conservative in many, many parts of the world. But there are some really solid women organisers in banks, in finance at the moment, and we're definitely keen to support them and are really trying to encourage some of those women and organisers to participate in the Anna Stewart Memorial Project here in Australia. It's a real tangible kind of fraternal relationship between the Australian labour movement and the Malaysian labour movement. Why do you believe finance workers? I mean, if you think about it, finance workers are very strategic. Partly the GST campaign, their industry is also one that is under attack in relation to irregularity and and flexible labour. And who knows why any particular industry becomes more radical? I mean, I thought inherently construction workers were more radical because I live here in Australia. I mean, when I went to the Philippines, those construction workers aren't organised at all. Activists in The Philippines will tell you it's impossible to organise them. So I think some very strong radicals emerged and started organising and now we've got the possibility of a very radical finance sector industry in Malaysia. Developing those grassroots links between us, the MTUC, and some activists on on the ground there. One of the other things that we got was an ability to have a discussion about a very important project that AAWL is developing and that is the global picket line. So looking at ways activists or not even activists, workers in particular industries across multiple countries can work together and raise the same demands. So having met some Thai garment industry workers, Cambodian industry garment workers, we already know people in Bangladesh and then working with Malaysians who kind of tend to be the ones holding this thread together. We actually had some space to talk about common demands across those industries and in um, industrial disputes. So that was really, really important. 
The other thing that I haven't mentioned at all in this discussion is I brought with me a comrade from India, so a trade unionist who organises in an export processing zone um, among steel workers, garment industry workers and vehicles manufacturing. The other thing that we managed to achieve was having this very small group get connected internationally. Prior to this visit, Australia was its only connection and that was a very important development. You know, there is something like 1.4 billion workers in India. One way to look at it is what did we get, what did they get? Another way is what did we all get and I think that is bigger than the sum of its parts. When you're doing international work and you spend, you know, a very, very long time getting on the same page, that moment when you're on the same page is actually really important and everything shifts in that moment and it's very palpable when everybody gets on the same page and I think that is what we achieved. And that's Giselle Hanna speaking about her recent visit to Malaysia and you can hear Giselle on 3CR most weeks on um, Saturday morning between 9 and 9.30, and I'm going to lose my voice in a minute, with um, Australia Asia Workerlinks program, Asia Pacific Currents. She's not there every week, but most weeks, and the co-presenters are there when she's not there. A really great program <clears throat> to learn about labour relations in Asia. Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate. Attacks on Muslims are increasing and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same. Don't be a bystander. Voices Against Bigotry is a 3CR supporter. Late last week, I rang Dr Brian Sinwaratna at his Bristman home to see how things were going. They're being going round that a certain man with the initials BS might be getting an award from the Queen. <laughs> that will be the day. I think that the recipients of the award from the Queen will then hand their awards back. They won't want to be classed with me. So I think you can put that aside for the moment. <laughs> Where did the rumour start? Some set of clowns in England said that what this guy has been trying to do for the last 65 or 70 years is to undo the damage done by the British when they left Sri Lanka in 1948, which actually is true, because had they left behind... What they found when they came into the country, three separate kingdoms and left behind at least federal Tamil state, which was, you know, their bounded duty. None of this crap would have occurred. Uh, I think the British are more than a case to answer. Actually, I've written a large paper on Britain's responsibility. Of course, there's nothing new. Wherever the British have gone, they have left a mess behind. (laughs) Palestine being a classic example. But it is the inability to undo the mess that the British had the capability of preventing that has resulted in all this. So tell us where you've been in the last month or so. For some bizarre reason, the Canadians decided to have a dinner in my honour. I wish they had told me about this earlier, otherwise I wouldn't have gone. They said we are having a meeting 
would you come? And I, like a monkey, said, yes, I'll come. I, I thought it was a meeting on Sri Lanka. To find that it was a sort of major dinner with some 700 odd people. I was so embarrassed. Fortunately, the day before, there was a meeting on human rights in which there were three speakers, international lawyers, and I was the only non-lawyer. And I had uh, sort of, I know, half an hour, 40 minutes to address the problems in Sri Lanka. And it was worth going for that. But the dinner itself, I thought, it was an absolute waste of money. And they gave me a, a, a lovely uh, presentation. That was worth going and collecting, except that they got my degrees wrong and even my name wrong. <laughs> From there, I went to visit the Cook Islands because they have no doctors there. And I thought that Australia being in the position that it is, we had an obligation to help the neighboring countries. And I ran that hospital for about two weeks and picked up, amongst other things, dengue fever. And I came back all achy. <laughs> I've only just got back to sort of a reasonable functional state. Why don't they have a doctor in the hospital? Unfortunately, they don't have anybody. The guy I went to relieve who calls himself the consultant physician, has got nothing but an MBBS. I mean, he's no consultant physician, that's for sure. They're all from Burma for some bizarre reason. They're really in a bad state. But the country is broke. I had to even pay my way there. And when they said, we booked you into a hotel, I expected at least my meals to be supplied. It was bed and breakfast, and breakfast consisted of two slices of bread and some, I think, jam or something, and that was it. One thing I did achieve, and my secretary wants me to go back, is that I lost some weight. I said, that's through starvation. He said, I think you should go back. <laughs> then why should it be an 80-something doctor going to do a job like that? Where are the younger doctors? Younger doctors won't go, you know, because this cost me a huge amount of money because when you go on a job like that, your practice here is put on hold or... If you get a locum, you wouldn't believe it. I think, uh, Jan, you're in the wrong business. A locum physician is $2,500 a day. And that's the sort of money I had to pay to get a guy to have a look at just a couple of patients of mine in hospital. I think the doctors are greedy. <laughs> I'm a little uh, disappointed that the older people, such as myself, are not going. Because when I came back, I came back as a tale of horrors, including one guy whom I diagnosed just 48 hours before I left, who had tetanus. Uh, I have not seen a case of tetanus for God knows 50 years. I thought it was a disease that was uh, extinct because everybody gets tetanus toxoid. Uh, now this fellow had full-blown tetanus. This is just bad news there. Isn't it responsibility for New Zealand to look after that? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I think I made a real mistake by offering to pay for my passage, uh, you know, expenses here, I should have gone to New Zealand and said, I am available, you pay my passage, and I will go. Uh, yes, very much so. It's not only New Zealand's responsibility, but I think New Zealand also gives a fair amount of money which goes into various pockets, but not where it is intended. But you are quite right, it is, I should approach New Zealand government and say, I am available, but you'll have to pay for my locum and my passage. Have you had any time amongst all your travels and whatever to keep up to date with what's happening in Sri Lanka? Yes, 
the more I see the situation on the Sincena, President Sincena, the more worried I'm getting. I think, in fact, that Tamils are getting cornered into a situation where a win or even a reasonable amount of justice is impossible. Right as you speak, right now, there is a secret meeting. When I say secret, I really mean that. It's a secret meeting in London between the government representatives and some Tamil characters of very dubious repute who are supposedly representing the Tamils. We are, of course, left out because we, don't, we, we rock the boat too much. And this thing that's going on in London is a huge concern, uh, not to mention the fact that Mr. Sirisena, the new president, he has lost the plot, uh, literally. 6,000 acres of the best agricultural land in Jaffna has been taken by the military. And he said that in his 100-day uh, promise, or 100 promises which he will implement, he said he will take all that land and hand it back to the rightful owners. Of the 6,000 acres, he was able to get less than 1,000 acres where the army told him to go to hell. Now, if the president of this country cannot tell his army to hand back the land that they have quite illegally acquired from the Tamil people, it uh, speaks volumes of Mr. Sinsena's ability. Actually, Sinsena is not the president of the country. He is only the elected president. The de facto president is Ranil Vikramasinghe, the prime minister. And uh, right as you speak, just 48 hours ago, there was a no-confidence motion submitted to the speaker, who happens to be Rajapaksa's brother, that the opposition in parliament, not the opposition, the members of parliament, 112 of the 225 members of parliament, are submitting a no-confidence motion on the prime minister so that Mr. Vikramasinghe will be out and he'll spend the rest of his days opening and closing the gates of the Prime Minister's lodge, which will probably be occupied by none other than Mr. Rajapaksa. Isn't Senesina just keeping the seat warm for Rajapaksa to come back? Ah, yeah. I, I, I have actually said that Rajapaksa uh, has not quit the position. He's only gone on sabbatical leave. He'll be back. He's organising all sorts of demonstrations all over Colombo saying that Rajapaksa is the man. He is the man who saved Sri Lanka. We want him back. I really do feel that he will play his card so well that he'll be back so that he can start robbing the country once more. And when are we going to have the, a proper investigation of what happened in 2009 and previously to that? Never, because... You know, this is, these are things that have been concerning me greatly, whether I've been the Cook Islands or not. I think that the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva is a joke. It has always been a joke. And the only non-joke time was when Navanizam Pillay was uh, in the driving seat. We won't find another Navanizam Pillay, that's for sure. Although I thought the world of Prince Zaid uh, al-Hussein, the very fact that he suppressed the memorandum written by three people whose job it was to report to the UN and the report to be tabled in March that he decided to postpone it to September. That wasn't his right. He had no right to do that. It made me lose a lot of confidence in right. 
So I think that September will come and go. The report, which was actually the motion was put forward by America with a different agenda altogether. America put that uh, uh, motion forward only to get a change of government in Colombo that will look at New York uh, or Washington rather than Beijing. That achieved, I think, America will now back down. And the motion will just uh, sort of go into the dustbin or be passed and nobody will uh, act on it. You see, even if it is passed in its current state, citizens can say, go to hell. We are not going to abide by anything. And the UN Human Rights Council, like the UN, hadn't got the wherewithal to fight this and say, no, I'm sorry, you can't chuck this into the dustbin. There is a thing called the responsibility to protect, and the Tamil people in the north and the east need protection. There is a clause in the R2P, as it is called, that if negotiations fail to protect the people, then the United Nations can send in uh, armed forces to implement the R2P. That they will never do. The short answer to your question is that I am extremely worried as to the way things are going. And Mr. Abbott can look forward to more boats coming and he can then start sinking them. Well, Brian, I'd just like to say that I'm, I'm very glad that you didn't get the gong because I believe that I don't think here at 3CR we're allowed to talk to people who have got a sir in front of their name. Oh, that, that's good, and I support that strongly. I, I come back with dengue fever <laughs> from the Cook Islands. That's why I'm coughing. I've got every muscle that's aching, and uh, I'm struggling to uh, keep bread on the table by going to work. So I wish I could pass it on to someone else. No, I had to bring a mosquito because it's a mosquito-borne yes. uh, disease. So I'll have to catch a mosquito and then get the guy to sting me and then sting all the other people around. So that won't happen. <laughs> all right. Poor Brian. That's human rights activist Dr. Brian Singaratna and wish him a speedy recovery from dengue fever. In late January this year, a number of Australian human rights and labour activists took part in a fact-finding mission to the Philippines to meet with communities adversely affected by Australian mining companies, visiting two mines, one in the north and one in the south. Peter Brock is the chairperson of Action for Peace and Development in the Philippines and was one of the participants. And when I spoke with Peter, I asked him first, about the organisation he represents. Action for Peace and Development in the Philippines is a Sydney-based group of um, people who are interested in supporting the Philippines and the Filipino people achieving genuine peace and development and protecting human rights. We formed uh, in 2003 here for, amongst uh, a group of Australians who had uh, particular interest in the Philippines or particular sectors or groups of the population in the Philippines such as workers or women or tribal uh, indigenous groups and stuff like that. We conceive of our function, as I said, uh, to take action to support the Filipino people and what they're doing to achieve genuine peace and development, a range of initiatives and actions, letter writing and uh, raising issues with politicians, but we also have vigils and protests uh, here uh, around issues. We visit ourselves and encourage others to visit the Philippines to learn more of uh, 
the issues and what's going on and uh, we form partnerships with groups here uh, on issues of common concern. I've visited the Philippines numerous times over the uh, past 30 plus years. I first went there in 1983 and I actually had a stint of three years from 1986 to 89 as an intern on human rights issues in the Philippines. So I've had a long association with the country and interested in the issues of the country. Has your focus mainly been on mining or much broader than that? Much broader. My personal focus has been strongly on human rights issues particularly uh, the uh, extrajudicial killings or summary executions of uh, people, particularly human rights activists, uh, unionists, people uh, seeking uh, genuine land reform, people uh, also who are engaged in organising the poorest communities faced uh, summary execution in the Philippines over the past 30 years that I've been involved, so we've been uh, active in those issues. Action for Peace and Development also has been supportive and interested in the process of uh, peace talks in the Philippines, particularly between the uh, government of the Philippines and the National Democratic Front in the Philippines, particularly the comprehensive nature of those talks where um, it's uh, envisaged that uh, after the comprehensive agreement they signed on human rights and international uh, humanitarian law, they would move beyond that to the area of socio and economic development as a key to address the underlying conflict in the country. I was speaking to someone the other day about the Philippines. He went back just a couple of weeks ago and I asked him if he noticed changes from when he was last there about maybe 10 years ago and he said very little. I think that's uh, very true. The persistence of... uh, huge inequalities in wealth um, and the concentration in, of power in few families, they say 100 families in the Philippines controls the power, persists. The consequence of that is the vast majority of people living in poverty. I have to say that uh, uh, what's always impressed me about the Filipino people, particularly the ones that are doing it tough, is they always have a very positive attitude. They always strive to do their best. They don't hesitate to continue to organise in unions, in women's groups, in the groups of uh, the rural and urban poor and peasants groups. They continue to advocate around their human rights and take every avenue that they can, despite the risks, both the existence of inequality, poverty and uh, human rights violations that continues, but also what continues is the optimism and the courage of the Filipino people taking action. This latest visit that we're going to talk about, who went from Australia and and who invited you? We were invited to the Philippines or hosted in the Philippines by two major groups. One is called Kalakasan PNE. Kalakasan means creation or the created order Um, and PNE stands for the Philippine Network on Environment so it is an environmental group very concerned about the environmental impacts of mining in the Philippines. The second group is a, a group in the Philippines uh, called the Rural Missions of the Philippines, and they partner with groups in the specific provinces uh, that we uh, visited, essentially an organisation of uh, Catholic rural missionaries who live in uh, the, the communities they serve. Can you talk about the two provinces that you went to and, and the two Australian-connected mines that you visited? Yes, um, the first uh, province we visited is uh, in the south of the country. It's a, a province called South Cabarato. It's actually, um, the mine is on the borderline of um, four provinces, but South Cotabato and uh, Southern Dabao or Dabao del Sur 
the two main provinces that uh, we, we spent time in. The mine is uh, called the Tampakan Mine. It's a large copper and gold mine, probably the largest uh, in Asia and uh, one of the largest in the world. It, it's obviously a discovered deposit. It was uh, investigated and, uh, over the years by a number of co mining companies, including uh, Western Mining Company. The process of uh, takeovers and mergers and stuff like that means that Western Mining Company became a part of a company called Extrata, Extrata now has been taken over by a company called Glencore, which is actually a Swiss-based company, though it's got an Australian unit, and the Australian unit is generally recognised up until now as the uh, legal owner of uh, the company's interest in the Philippine mine. It's a situation where the Mining Act of the Philippines is a very unfair law for the Filipino people, and it it sets up a situation where overseas companies and organisations can 100% own a mine such as the Tampakan mine in the Philippines. At this state, Glencore is the 100% uh, owner of that interest in the Philippine mine. There is an arrangement they have with a Philippine company which had an original interest in the mine, but that uh, arrangement is essentially a, a non-ownership arrangement, but uh, that Philippine entity will benefit from some proportion of the royalties if the mine ever operates. The situation is now uh, that two provinces, particularly uh, the province Cotabatu, uh, the provincial government, as well as two local government units in the area, have indicated that they are opposed to the mine operating as an open pit mine. The proposal of uh, the mining company Glencore and uh, its Philippine uh, legal entity which uh, has the uh, license to operate the mine uh, is for a large open cut mine with uh, a huge tailings dam and a huge dump of uh, the uh, waste from the extraction process. Now it's in a uh, mountainous uh, region uh, of the southern Philippines near General Santos City, the huge valley but uh, the proposal is uh, to have a huge open cut mine and the particular village that we visited and spent time there in uh, late January, January 28 to 29, is a village called Bong Mao. Uh, indigenous people who live in that village uh, farm the valley around and uh, they've discovered uh, several years ago that if the mine develops, uh, that whole valley will be filled with mine dumps and they'll lose the land that they farm and they cultivate for their property. So. They're opposed to the mine. Uh, the provincial government is opposed to the mine and has passed an environmental uh, code that uh, bans open-cut mining. So at this stage, there's that opposition. Now, the national <coughs> government of the Philippines is uh, pursuing a pro-mining policy and wants this mine to go ahead. They've passed their own environmental code allowing the mine to go ahead. So there is a clash between the national and the provincial law and that'll be a question uh, that will have to be resolved. The provincial government is standing firm on that proposal, and we had the opportunity to speak to uh, the provincial governor, a lady called Miss Daisy Vance-Fontes. Uh, she's uh, indicated very clearly to us that she is standing firm on uh, their environmental code that uh, bans open-cut mining, and uh, she has the support uh, of uh, essentially the what they call the provincial government or the provincial code council which is the uh, legislature in the province so that's the situation with that mine have people already been taken off their land or pushed off their land in preparation for this mine 
Some people, but uh, the vast majority, no. Um, it's a situation where they're looking at the reality or the possibility. What really has happened, and uh, this mine has been owned and proposed for something like 25 years, people associated with our group uh, have visited the area looking at the possibility of the mine as early as 1995, so we've certainly been monitoring this for a long time. I, I guess the bigger concern, or the concerns that we have, uh, our monitor of these is Definitely there are human rights violations. A number of people have been either executed or are subject to harassment from both military but more particularly paramilitary groups because of their opposition, partly at least, and in some cases probably entirely because of their opposition to the mine and particularly the national government's hope to develop or approve and have the mine developed. There is a famous case from 2012, the family called the Capion family, the husband, or the, the male in the, the family, a name called Dagil Campion, um, has been leading the opposition to the mine. His wife, Juvie Campion, was fully part of that opposition, fully part of the group opposing the mine. They had uh, several children. And Dagil himself was not at the farm at the day. He was finding uh, uplands further away from uh, where the family home was. But uh, a unit of the 27th Infantry Battalion of the Philippines arrived early in the morning looking for him, saying that they had an arrest warrant. Uh, unfortunately, gunfire ensued. The military claimed that they were provoked. There is uh, credible reports that uh, that's not a true story. Unfortunately, at the end, um, Juvia Capion, the mother, uh, and two of her sons, aged from memory from six and eight, uh, were killed. Daughter was also seriously injured, and uh, that was a tragic consequence and uh, one of the tragic uh, incidents that happened for people who opposed the mine. No one's been charged over the deaths. Charges were laid initially, and then uh, the prosecutors, the prosecution service in that area, said that there was no probable cause to charge the uh, soldiers. They followed up the story uh, saying that, uh, or accepting uh, the uh, story of the soldiers that uh, somebody fired on them first and they were acting in self-defence. And so initially they said there was no uh, probable cause, no reason to charge the soldiers. More recently what's happened is that um, the junior soldiers have been charged um, again and they are going to appear before court. But there was an announcement a few days ago that said that the uh, commanding officer of that particular company who was present on the day, he's not going to be charged uh, because he's, uh, the commanding officer is not charged. The local community, and particularly the family and the community of um, Judy Capion and uh, the two, her two sons who were the killed people, are very upset about that. They believe that uh, the commanding officer is equally culpable and possibly more culpable than the ordinary runners, ordinary soldiers who uh, allegedly were involved in this incident, in this killing. So you're saying it's since 1995. What's mm-hmm. the site look like? What is it costing these gold mining companies to keep this lease, or is it a lease, open with the prospect perhaps in the, in the f- near future that they might be able to do it? Now, it's hard to sort of uh, put, put a total price. I mean, they they certainly invested uh, quite a, a very significant uh, amount of money. Uh, I saw a um, document from Glencore a couple of years, which was produced a couple of years ago, uh, giving a, a budget in the range of about thirty million dollars a year they were spending spending there, in, in terms of doing some uh, further exploratory work, uh, doing some. Uh, 
sort of uh, preliminary work uh, developing uh, the area around the mine and uh, some road access. What it looks like, well, at the moment, is it's still a combination of virgin forest, very beautiful area, but very rugged. So virgin forest and then uh, small-scale farming, cultivation um, not only of rice but things like banana, corn, pineapple, other products. It's very much a sort of kind of subsistence uh, living environment. Some families uh, earn a little bit uh, more to sell in the local market but that's uh, a very fraught journey over a very rugged road but some do that. In terms of the community, I'd say that the housing and the uh, environment is, is quite plain, but quite comfortable as well. It's uh, certainly a very beautiful part of the world, and uh, people are very connected with their land, very respectful of their land, but also uh, want to uh, continue to uh, live their, their lifestyle and continue to farm the land as they have. You're listening to Community Radio in Melbourne, 3CR. I'm Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with Peter Brock, who's the chairperson of Action for Peace and Development in the Philippines. The second mine is owned by Oceana Gold. That's in the northern part of the Philippines in a province called Nova Vizcaya, four or five hundred kilometres north of Manila on the main island of Luzon. And Oceana Gold, which is headquartered in Collins Street, Melbourne, and uh, he trades on the Australian Stock Exchange as well as New Zealand Stock Exchange in Canada. He's the uh, owner of uh, that mine and uh, uh, has been operating it as a functioning mine since uh, the early part of 2012. And what's been the impact of that in the pursuing years? Several impacts. Environmentally, um, the Philippine science group called AGHAM has analysed the river that flows down from the mine site. The mine has actually taken over an area which is a junction of uh, two rivers. What's happened, is one is the Didipio River and another river, and uh, which is essentially a tributary of the Didipio mine. And uh, the second river essentially no longer exists because the open cart part of the mine has dug into that. What's been found is that uh, it's, a, uh, again, a gold and copper mine but um, downstream from the mine, there are highly elevated levels of heavy metals, particularly um, copper, that they've found. And that's, the levels are associated with um, significant health problems for human populations, but it also is um, not good for both uh, farming, uh, raising things like rice crops and banana plantations, which the people do in that area, as well as citrus plantations, but it also affects livestock. The Filipino people use uh, carabaos for a lot of people, their work, uh, their farm work. There has been talk of uh, carabaos uh, in the local community uh, being uh, very sick and even dying after drinking the water. You can see also um, a real coloration of the uh, water below the uh, river. Um, and that's the other impact is that the mine now is act, uh, operating. The tailings dam has been established above the mine site there is clear leakage from the mining site, uh, from the tailings dam, uh, in, which flows into the river. We're able to see that uh, leakage, the outflow of water from the tailings dam and taken photos of that. But uh, the other impact is, of course, um, there's a lot of workers on the site. They have toilet facilities. The Oceana Gold claims that those toilet facilities, or the outflow of those toilet facilities, goes through a rigorous treatment plan. Um, and uh, promoting that uh, heavily. Uh, when we were there, we saw some of the outflow, the discoloured outflow from uh, that treatment plan going into the river. We also 
uh, were able to smell odour of sewage outflow essentially from the treatment plan and uh, whatever the claims, it uh, appears on the face of it uh, that uh, that's not clean. So being human rights impacts and impacts in people losing their land. What about the impacts further down the river? Well, I mean, that's a, a very co- big concern because um, the uh, mine is associated with uh, the catchment of uh, the Philippines' biggest river, um, and that is the Cagayan River. It flows north from this area to... Uh, Essentially, uh, it's uh, the mouth uh, which is located in the very north of Luzon Island, uh, opposite, uh, I guess, Taiwan, if you can think about it that way. It's a huge river. The Cagayan Valley is a huge agricultural area. They rely on the water from that river. The DDPO River flows directly into the Cagayan River. We haven't had any reports yet uh, or analysis uh, of uh, the impacts there, but potentially there can be very significant impact from the pollution. The other concern is and uh, is uh, about the tailings dam. Uh, obviously the tailings dam I- includes some quite um, serious toxins. It uh, is a combination of the water used from the processing of copper, which in the copper is a plant, uh, but they also uh, process gold there. And uh, the concern is that uh, the chemicals used to process the gold also is in the tailings dam. Now, the tailings dam um, was built uh, during 2011, but uh, essentially, and this is a very sort of significant process, what happened was that Oceana Gold submitted one plan which was used for the initial approvals, including environmental approvals. It had a modest size open-cut mine and uh, a location of the uh, tailings dam some distance away from the rivers and particularly the fork of those two rivers that I talked about. What happened then is uh, once uh, the uh, gold price rose and uh, Oceana Gold was able to raise the funds needed to construct the mine and put it into operation, suddenly they introduced what they call an amended plan. Now that amended plan required less uh, approvals, but what it did is it tripled the size of the open-cut mine it needed uh, then a much, much larger tailings dam. And the tailings dam was now located smack bang in the heart of um, what the, the, the river catchment area, particularly those two rivers. And with any potential uh, spill or uh, natural outflow, uh, outflow through uh, seepage going into those rivers. And that's what's happened now. And that's what the, uh, the uh, results of this scientific organisation in the Philippines Agham have uh, established and proved that there is outflow, uh, that the elevated levels of uh, heavy metals and particularly copper in the river reflect that. Uh, there is also dis- similar discoloration as uh, the material in the uh, tailings dam. Obviously Agham and others will be continuing to monitor it um, and there is a, a group returning from Australia in uh, July-August to attend the International Mining Conference, which Calatasan, the environmental group, and others are organising uh, for the Philippines, and that'll involve people from uh, the United Kingdom, Canada, uh, Ecuador, and uh, Guatemala, I believe, as uh, well as Japan and uh, other countries in Europe. The intention is to visit again the DDPO mine in uh, the Biscaya Luzon in uh, the Philippines to exactly see what is the developments and uh, whether the uh, pollution and the other things that we've observed continue. When you're talking about human rights, you also need to talk about the cultural damage to the people 
the deforestation, particularly of their ancestral lands, has that occurred in that area? There has been um, levels of uh, deforestation, but though um, the lands that um, the people um, have lost to the mining in there is essentially farming land. The mine is built in a valley called the Didipio Valley, um, and that valley was essentially uh, sourced water from uh, the Didipio River, which is now dried up in large parts, but uh, the people were farming that land and uh, rice, uh, was uh, part of the products and things like that. Now, it was an interesting situation there in that the actual occupants of the land uh, where the mine uh, was built were people who were indigenous but indigenous to the northern part of uh, the Philippines in the Cordillera. In the 1970s, they were displaced from their own land by dams and other activities in the Cordillera. And the indigenous people uh, of uh, the region of uh, the Didipio mine, Nova Vizcaya, welcome them to uh, settle and uh, use uh, lands within their traditional uh, tribal domain. The uh, indigenous people uh, of that area certainly were not happy about the mine and uh, the damage to the land. But another part of the story, the mining company over the 20 years used a range of tactics including divide and reel tactics as well as tactics of being uh, quite aggressive uh, in terms of clamping down on people opposed to the mine with the assistance uh, of some of the uh, local police. And so they had a small group of Indigenous people, Indigenous leaders, who signed on to the mine, uh, and uh, that was part of the approval process, and the mine was built. There has been some deforestation uh, for the tailings dam part of it, but again, quite a lot of that is uh, on land which was previously cleared for farming. But uh, the indigenous peoples, both of that area and Cordillera, part of their traditional cultures dating back centuries is farming, farming in terraces, farming along uh, river courses and valleys. So that is part of it. What they have lost in terms of cultural practices and uh, their circumstances is that traditional farming on, along that area of the mine and then uh, the impact which uh, seems to gathering, be gathering pace of the pollution of the main river and the main water source. Apart from the mining conference, what other avenues do the people have to protest about what's happening to their land and their environment? Well, I think there's a number of things that are happening and uh, it's proving effective. I mean, and, and the fact that uh, the, both the DDPO mine and uh, the mine uh, in Tampakan in the southern Philippines have taken so long to come on stream reflect that. In the case of the Tampakan mine in southern Mindanao, when I, we visited it, it was a fascinating time because it was actually the day the uh, Philippine government agency tasked to try and get the indigenous people to agree and give their what's called the free prior informed consent to the development of the mine. That was the day in uh, January, late January, that uh, the national government body called the uh, National Indigenous Peoples Commission was uh, essentially trying to encourage Indigenous people to gather at a meeting and to uh, basically have half a day being told what the mine will be like and then uh, the rest of the day to provide their consent to it. Uh, a very abbreviated and uh, rushed process. What was interesting is that the, uh, the local people and Indigenous people's leaders were all united saying that they were not going to agree to that, they were not going to be hoodwinked or bought off or anything like that. 
that they've been standing united against that mind since 1995, and they'll continue to stand united against that mind. So that's one strategy, just basically, yes, engaging in the processes where their views are sought by government and the mining company, but uh, consistently stating their opposition to the mine. The next process, obviously, has been uh, to lobby the provincial governments and the local government units uh, that area in the Philippines who have uh, introduced bans on open-cut mining, which are effectively a stop to the mine going ahead. The next challenge in that regard is that, uh, uh, as I suggested earlier, the, lo the national government has set up a process whereby they've got their own national environmental code and uh, are threatening to essentially take action in the highest court in the Philippines to say that uh, the national code, uh, which would allow open-cut mining, overrides the local and provincial codes which oppose open-cut mining. The people want to continue to go through this process just recently, the Department of Environment and National Resources, after refusing three times to give environmental clearance for the operation of the Toon Park and Mine, buckled to extreme pressure from the President of the Philippines, uh, Benigno Aquino, in his office, and issued a conditional approval. And a conditional approval with a number of conditions, but the mine condition is that the indigenous people of the area approve the mine. One of the controversial things that we saw about two weeks ago is that the uh, Department of Environment and National Resources and uh, National Commission on Indigenous Peoples issued uh, an opinion that uh, we don't have to have all the communities of Indigenous people agree in that area to agree to the mine. If there is a majority of communities which would agree, that would be sufficient. The problematic is, of course, that uh, the uh, uh, the mine is a large mine and the operations will affect a large area and whilst uh, they're all indigenous people called the, the Balaan people, they do have their individual communities in each valley and each village. It covers a large area but uh, they're individual and what is the concern which we assured by the local people is not uh, something we should worry about but still it is a concern that the strategy is again to divide. So the people who um, are directly affected, like the community of Bong Mao, which will, will lose all their farmland and their valley and the river, the Bong River that runs through uh, the area, they're going to be united in their opposition. But some of us are worried that the company and uh, the government will try and get communities who are less affected to agree to the mine by offers of money, offers of jobs in the mine and uh, such, such things. Are local groups attuned to what this is happening? They're keeping a watching brief on this? Yeah, indeed. And interestingly, I mean, the, the company has, uh, in, over the years, particularly when it was Western Mining Company and then Extrata, it's only latterly been merged into Glencore, employed quite a lot of those people in the process of consultation. And in, in a way, it's a little bit uh, interesting that the company did do that consultation, but it was always obviously... Uh, driven by the South's interest to get the mine operating. Um, and some of the uh, present community leaders, including one that we spoke to, have worked for a number of years. I mean, one spoke, worked for 12 years with the company and was uh, you know, prepared to, as he said, go through the process of consultation so that the people could learn what the company was talking about if it was viable to have a sustainable, even 
environmentally responsible mine which delivered benefits to the community and their children, they could um, be on side with that. He saw that as an opportunity not only to have an employment but to engage in a genuine consultative process. He left the company because essentially when the company got to the point of developing the plans and the detailed specifications of the mine, he realised that the company was going for a huge environmentally destructive mine which would strip land away from many thousands of families and many people uh, in the Indigenous communities. And at that point he resigned from the company and became active in the opposition to the mine. So they have a deep knowledge and a really strong knowledge base of uh, what the mine is, the strategies that are being used by successive governments and successive companies. Our reports from 1995 and 1996 about uh, how Western Mining Corporation operated was uh, that they were quite brazen and uh, I guess cowboys and Westing Mining Corporation, for those who have some memory, have had a reputation of being a bit like that particularly in the way that they treated uh, Indigenous peoples here in Australia. Some of the uh, antics of uh, Hugh Morgan, their uh, chairperson, uh, chairman in years gone by, uh, were sort of uh, stuff of legend, uh, I guess, amongst uh, anti-mining activists and Indigenous peoples in Australia. And it was evidenced in what they did in uh, the Philippines, which means that uh, the local communities, and particularly the elders and the leaders who were around through the whole period, really know that what they're dealing with, what they're confronting with, and that's why um, they're solid in their opposition but uh, and, and solid in their unity against that. However, I mean, there, there are strong economic forces. As I've said, a number of people have been executed, a number of people have been subject to human rights abuses. It's a serious uh, issue and a serious, uh, I guess, struggle or movement to be engaged in and uh, that's why uh, they're working very hard to build up all the support they can get from across the Philippines and across the world and that's why they were so happy to see us when we uh, came for a solidarity mission and an associated medical mission to provide medical services particularly to the children of the community. They were so happy and supportive and uh, I guess that's they're part of the campaign both in Tampak and in Mindanao but in Luzon uh, island uh, in the village, uh, the community of Didipio, they um, also are looking for support internationally and uh, particularly uh, from Australia, New Zealand, uh, uh, in the case of Didipio, because uh, the Oceana Gold, whilst Australian based, uh, has originated in New Zealand and has strong links in New Zealand. They also are looking for support from the United Kingdom because with uh, the sort of globalisation and transnationalisation of that company, Glencore, it's essentially um, now a fully owned United Kingdom company or with headquarters in Switzerland. It no longer technically is an Australian company, though it has an, a unit, uh, as I said, headquartered in Australia, which officially owns the mine in the Philippines. So it's likely that that could change in uh, the, the next uh, few months as uh, the, uh, the company uh, rationalises its operations and thinks about possibly even on-selling the, uh, the mine or the uh, proposed mine in the Philippines to realise some profits. Thanks very much, Peter, and I'll keep an eye on this with the other Peter and um, might talk to you again one day. Yeah, it'll be a pleasure. Uh, certainly uh, 
can uh, let you know happens in July and August uh, with the visit and the uh, You're four going? Australians. Unfortunately, I can't. Unfortunately, there's four or five other people from uh, from Sydney, especially, who are going. And we're encouraging people from Melbourne and uh, other places, and particularly Perth, to go. And uh, hopefully, uh, there will be a strong contingent from Australia, as well as the Canadians, the uh, people from the UK, Europe, uh, and the Latin American countries will be present. Thank you very much, Jen. Thank you, Peter. And that's Peter Brock, who's the chairperson of Action for Peace and Development in the Philippines. No more time for anything else. I'll be back next Tuesday at four o'clock. Bye for now.